The Virginian, a Horseman of the Plains. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Harris. The Virginian by Owen Wister. To Theodore Roosevelt. Some of these pages you have seen, some you have praised, one stands new written because you blamed it, and all, my dear critic, beg leave to remind you of their author's changeless admiration. To the Reader Certain of the newspapers, when this book was first announced, made a mistake most natural upon seeing the subtitle as it then stood, A Tale of Sundry Adventures. This sounds like a historical novel, said one of them, meaning, I take it, a colonial romance. As it now stands, the title will scarce lead to such interpretation. Yet none the less is this book historical, quite as much so as any colonial romance. Indeed, when you look at the root of the matter, it is a colonial romance. For Wyoming, between 1874 and 1890, was a colony as wild as was Virginia one hundred years earlier. As wild, with a scantier population, and the same primitive joys and dangers. There were, to be sure, not so many Chippendale settees. We know quite well the common understanding of the term historical novel. Hugh Wynne exactly fits it, but Silas Lapham is a novel as perfectly historical as is Hugh Wynne, for it pictures an era and personifies a type. It matters not that in the one we find George Washington, and in the other none save imaginary figures else the scarlet letter were not historical. Nor does it matter that Dr. Mitchell did not live in the time of which he wrote, while Mr. Howells saw many Silas Laphams with his own eyes, else Uncle Tom's cabin were not historical. Any narrative which presents faithfully a day and a generation is of necessity historical, and this one presents Wyoming between 1874 and 1890. Had you left New York or San Francisco at ten o'clock this morning, by noon the day after tomorrow you could step out at Cheyenne. There you would stand at the heart of the world that is the subject of my picture, yet you would look around you in vain for the reality. It is a vanished world. No journeys, save those which memory can take, will bring you to it now. The mountains are there, far and shining, and the sunlight, and the infinite earth, and the air that seems forever the true fountain of youth. But where is the buffalo and the wild antelope, and where the horseman with his pasturing thousands? So like its old self does the sagebrush seem, when revisited, that you wait for the horseman to appear. But he will never come again. He rides in his historic yesterday. You will no more see him gallop out of the unchanging silence than you will see Columbus on the unchanging sea come sailing from Palos with his caravels. And yet the horseman is still so near our day that in some chapters of this book, which were published separate at the close of the nineteenth century, the present tense was used. It is true no longer. In those chapters it has been changed, and verbs like is and have now read was and had. Time has flowed faster than my ink. What is become of the horseman, the cowpuncher, the last romantic figure upon our soil? For he was romantic. Whatever he did, he did with his might. 
The bread that he earned was earned hard. The wages that he squandered were squandered hard. Half a year's pay sometimes gone in a night. Blown in, as he expressed it, or blowed in, to be perfectly accurate. Well, he will be here among us always, invisible, waiting his chance to live and play as he would like. His wild kind has been among us always, since the beginning. A young man with his temptations, a hero without wings. The cowpuncher's ungoverned hours did not unman him. If he gave his word, he kept it. Wall Street would have found him behind the times. Nor did he talk lewdly to women. Newport would have thought him old-fashioned. He and his brief epoch make a complete picture, for in themselves they were as complete as the pioneers of the land or the explorers of the sea. A transition has followed the horseman of the plains, a shapeless state, a condition of men and manners as unlovely as is that moment in the year when winter is gone and spring not come, and the face of nature is ugly. I shall not dwell upon it here. Those who have seen it know well what I mean. Such transition was inevitable. Let us give thanks that it is but a transition and not a finality. Sometimes readers inquire, did I know the Virginian? As well, I hope, as a father should know his son. And sometimes it is asked, was such and such a thing true? Now to this I have the best answer in the world. Once a cowpuncher listened patiently while I read him a manuscript. It concerned an event upon an Indian reservation. "'Was that the Crow Reservation?' he inquired at the finish. I told him that it was no real reservation and no real event, and his face expressed displeasure. "'Why,' he demanded, "'do you waste your time writing what never happened, when you know so many things that did happen?' And I could no more help telling him that this was the highest compliment ever paid me than I have been able to help telling you about it here. Charleston, South Carolina, March 31, 1902 Chapter 1 of The Virginian This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister Chapter 1 Enter the Man Some notable sight was drawing the passengers, both men and women, to the window and therefore I rose and crossed the car to see what it was. I saw near the track an enclosure, and round it some laughing men, and inside it some whirling dust, and amid the dust some horses, plunging, huddling, and dodging. They were cow-ponies in a corral, and one of them would not be caught, no matter who threw the rope. We had plenty of time to watch this sport, for our train had stopped that the engine might take water at the tank before it pulled us up beside the station platform of Medicine Bow. We were also six hours late and starving for entertainment. The pony in the corral was wise and rapid of limb. Have you seen a skillful boxer watch his antagonist with a quiet, incessant eye? Such an eye as this did the pony keep upon whatever man took the rope. The man might pretend to look at the weather, which was fine, or he might affect earnest conversation with a bystander. It was bootless. The pony saw through it. No feint hoodwinked him. This animal was thoroughly a man of the world. His undistracted eye stayed fixed upon the dissembling foe, and the gravity of his horse expression made the matter one of high comedy. 
Then the rope would sail out at him, but he was already elsewhere. And if horses laugh, gaiety must have abounded in that corral. Sometimes the pony took a turn alone. Next he had slid in a flash among his brothers, and the whole of them, like a school of playful fish, whipped round the corral, kicking up the fine dust, and, I take it, roaring with laughter. Through the window-glass of our pullman the thud of their mischievous hoofs reached us, and the strong humorous curses of the cowboys. Then, for the first time, I noticed a man who sat on the high gate of the corral looking on. For he now climbed down with the undulations of a tiger, smooth and easy, as if his muscles flowed beneath his skin. The others had all visibly whirled the rope, some of them even shoulder-high. I did not see his arm lift or move. He appeared to hold the rope down low by his leg, but like a sudden snake I saw the noose go out its length and fall true, and the thing was done. As the captured pony walked in with a sweet church-door expression, our train moved slowly on to the station, and a passenger remarked, "'That man knows his business.' But the passenger's dissertation upon roping I was obliged to lose, for Medicine Bow was my station. I bade my fellow travellers good-bye, and descended, a stranger, into the great cattle-land. And here, in less than ten minutes, I learned news which made me feel a stranger indeed. My baggage was lost. It had not come on my train. It was adrift somewhere back in the two thousand miles that lay behind me and by way of comfort the baggage-man remarked that passengers often got astray from their trunks, but the trunks mostly found them after a while. Having offered me this encouragement, he turned whistling to his affairs and left me planted in the baggage-room at Medicine Bow. I stood deserted among crates and boxes, blankly holding my check, hungry and forlorn. I stared out through the door at the sky and the plains, but I did not see the antelope shining among the sagebrush, nor the great sunset light of Wyoming. Annoyance blinded my eyes to all things save my grievance. I saw only a lost trunk, and I was muttering half aloud, What a forsaken hole this is! When suddenly from outside on the platform came a slow voice. Off to get married again? Oh, don't! The voice was southern and gentle and drawling, and a second voice came in immediate answer, cracked and querulous. "'It ain't again! Who says it's again? Who told you anyway?' And the first voice responded caressingly, "'Why, your Sunday clothes told me, Uncle Huey. They are speaking mighty loud on nuptials.' "'You don't worry me!' snapped Uncle Huey, with shrill heat. And the other gently continued, Ain't them gloves the same you wore to your last weddin'? You don't worry me, you don't worry me, now screamed Uncle Huey. Already I had forgotten my trunk. Care had left me. I was aware of the sunset, and had no desire but for more of this conversation, for it resembled none that I had heard in my life so far. I stepped to the door and looked out upon the station platform. Lounging there, at ease against the wall, was a slim young giant, more beautiful than pictures. His broad, soft hat was pushed back. A loose-knotted, dull scarlet handkerchief sagged from his throat, 
and one casual thumb was hooked in the cartridge belt that slanted across his hips. He had plainly come many miles from somewhere across the vast horizon, as the dust upon him showed. His boots were white with it, his overalls were gray with it. The weather-beaten bloom of his face shone through it duskily, as the ripe peaches look upon their trees in a dry season. But no dinginess of travel or shabbiness of attire could tarnish the splendor that radiated from his youth and strength. The old man, upon whose temper his remarks were doing such deadly work, was combed and curried to a finish, a bridegroom swept and garnished. But alas for age! Had I been the bride, I should have taken the giant, dust and all. He had by no means done with the old man. "'Why, you've hung wedding garments on every limb,' he now drawled with admiration. "'Who is the lucky lady this trip?' The old man seemed to vibrate. "'Tell you there ain't been no other. Call me a Mormon, would you?' "'Why, that—' "'Call me a Mormon? Then name some of my wives. Name two. Name one. Dare you.' "'That Laramie widow promised you—' "'Shucks! Only her doctor suddenly ordered southern climate, and—' "'Shucks! You're a false alarm!' "'So nothing but her lungs came between you. "'And next you'd most got united with cattle Kate, only—' "'Tell you you're a false alarm! Only she got hung. "'Where's the wives in all this? Show the wives. Come now!' "'That corn-fed biscuit-shooter at Rawlins you gave the canary. "'Never married her! Never did marry! "'But you come so near, uncle!' She was the one left you that letter explaining how she'd got married to a young Kiard player the very day before her ceremony with you was due, and— Oh, you're nothing. You're a kid. You don't amount to— And how she'd never, never forgot to feed the canary. This country's getting full of kids, stated the old man witheringly. It's doomed. This crushing assertion plainly satisfied him, and he blinked his eyes with renewed anticipation. His tall tormentor continued with a face of unchanging gravity and a voice of gentle solicitude. "'How is the health of that unfortunate—that's right, pour your insults, pour em on a sick, afflicted woman!' The eyes blinked with combative relish. "'Insults? Oh, no, Uncle Huey!' "'That's all right, insults goes!' "'Why, I was mighty relieved when she began to recover her memory.' Last time I heard, they told me she'd got it pretty near all back. Remembered her father and her mother and her sisters and brothers and her friends and her happy childhood and all her doings except only your face. The boys was betting she'd get that far, too, give her time. But I reckon after such a turrible sickness as she had, that would be expectin' most too much. At this Uncle Huey jerked out a small parcel. "'Shows how much you know,' he cackled. "'There, see that? That's my ring she sent me back, being too unstrung for marriage. So she don't remember me, don't she? Ha, ha! Always said you were a false alarm.' The southerner put more anxiety into his tone. "'And so you're a-taking the ring right on to the next one?' he exclaimed. "'Oh, don't go to get married again, Uncle Huey. What's the use of being married?' "'What's the use?' echoed the bridegroom with scorn. "'Hm! When you grow up you'll think different.' 
course I expect to think different when my age is different. I'm having the thoughts proper to twenty-four, and you're having the thoughts proper to sixty. Fifty! shrieked Uncle Hughie, jumping in the air. The Southerner took a tone of self-reproach. Now how could I forget you was fifty, he murmured, when you have been telling it to the boys so careful for the last ten years. Have you ever seen a cockatoo, the white kind with the top knot, enraged by insult? The bird erects every available feather upon its person. So did Uncle Huey seem to swell, clothes, mustache, and woolly white beard, and without further speech he took himself on board the eastbound train, which now arrived from its siding in time to deliver him. Yet this was not why he had not gone away before. At any time he could have escaped into the baggage-room, or withdrawn to a dignified distance until his train should come up. But the old man had evidently got a sort of joy from this teasing. He had reached that inevitable age when we are tickled to be linked with affairs of gallantry, no matter how. With him now the eastbound departed slowly into that distance whence I had come. I stared after it as it went its way to the far shores of civilization. It grew small in the unending gulf of space, until all sign of its presence was gone save a faint skein of smoke against the evening sky. And now my lost trunk came back into my thoughts, and Medicine Bow seemed a lonely spot. A sort of ship had left me marooned in a foreign ocean. The Pullman was comfortably steaming home to port, while I—how was I to find Judge Henry's ranch? Where, in this unfeatured wilderness, was Sunk Creek? No creek or any water at all flowed here that I could perceive. My host had written he should meet me at the station, and drive me to his ranch. This was all that I knew. He was not here. The baggage man had not seen him lately. The ranch was almost certain to be too far to walk to, to-night. My trunk— I discovered myself still staring dolefully after the vanished eastbound, and at the same instant I became aware that the tall man was looking gravely at me, as gravely as he had looked at Uncle Huey throughout their remarkable conversation. To see his eye thus fixing me, and his thumb still hooked in his cartridge belt, certain tales of travelers from these parts forced themselves disquietingly into my recollection. Now that Uncle Huey was gone, was I to take his place and be, for instance, invited to dance on the platform to the music of shots nicely aimed? "'I reckon I am looking for you, sir,' the tall man now observed. End of chapter 1